wanted to regain some sense of normalcy of who we were. And by doing good, you know, for other people, we we felt good about ourselves and we were getting our heads above the cancer. Right. It was not going to, you know, subsume us. Hello, I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashivenu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. My co-host, Rabbi Sandra Lawson, is not here today. I promise you she will return very soon. We're getting ready to record another podcast very soon. We're pivoting to the original model of Hashivenu for this uh, episode because there is someone I just really, I wanted to talk to, I wanted to share with you. My guest today is Richard Cohen. Richard was trained as a corporate lawyer, and he works now as a mergers and acquisitions advisor for uh, healthcare companies. We have him on today because he's the author of a wonderful book that came out last year called The Smooth River, Finding Inspiration and Exquisite Beauty During Terminal Illness. This book was uh, recognized by uh, Kirkus Reviews as one of the best indie books of 2021, and I know Richard through Reconstructionist circles. Our acquaintance is relatively new. His Reconstructionist bona fides go way back, including being president of the New York and New Jersey region of the Reconstructionist movement and on the board of the former Jewish Reconstructionist Federation, the precursor to Reconstructing Judaism. And he's a member of Bet Am Shalom, our congregation in Westchester, New York. And you will come to see that he has this professional persona and this incredible wisdom as an as the author of this book, which comes out of the hardest possible experience, the, the death of his wife. So I just, I really, uh, Richard, I'm so happy you're with us today and I'm so happy we get to share your wisdom with, with, our, with our listening audience. Never, thanks so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of yours and I'll do anything you say. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I just gave a long intro. Um, and, uh, I, I wondered if we wanted to start with how you came to, you know, the backstory, but with, with how you came to write the smooth river. Okay, thank you. It was the summer of 2019 when, um, Marsha and I were invited to take a trip to Israel, uh, the West Bank and Jordan by a Palestinian PhD mother of four. I befriended the year before when she was giving a talk in uh, Briarcliff Manor, New York. So we went on this mind-blowing, life-changing trip, immersing deep into Arab culture, uh, oftentimes being the only uh, Jewish people in, in our surroundings. Uh, we got back in late July 2019. Unrelated to the trip, Marsha started experiencing some stomach pain. She saw a GI. It was... Uh, diagnosed as a small intestine bacterial overgrowth or some other ailments like that, given some antibiotics that didn't work. So toward August, they gave her a blood, toward the end of August, they gave her a blood test. And on the day after Labor Day, September 3rd, 2019, she was called in to take a CT scan. An hour after the CT scan, we were called into her GI's office we talked that we you know, walked this uh, zombie type walk from a coffee shop we were at, not knowing what the results would be, but anticipating that you know these are the signals when bad news is about to be conveyed. 
we walked into his office, his body English said everything. As I say in the book, it was like pesticide vapor filling the air. And right then and there, he, he revealed that Marsha was diagnosed with stage four uh, pancreatic cancer. So if you don't know, Deborah, stage four pancreatic cancer is one of the most lethal cancers there is. Uh, stage four uh, signals that it has metastasized beyond the, the uh, pancreas, in Marsh's case, into the stomach lining and liver. And in that case, it's not operable. No surgery is available. And the median life expectancy is, is three to six months. So uh, that, was, that was the experience we were you know, confronted with. Um, and it took us a while to get you know, adjusted to that. If I may give you some background about my wife. Absolutely. And I love that you started with the trip to, to the Middle East because we already have a sense of the fullness of her life and your life together. Uh, please. A, a word about my wife. Her name is Marsha Horowitz, and she had two jobs in her life. One was working for maybe Abraham Beam, the mayor, in his press office for two or three years, and then for over 41 years at Howard Rubenstein Associates doing public relations and crisis management. And she represented celebrities, famous sports figures, corporations, private schools, universities, nonprofits, all within crisis, all within some, uh, some problem that they were having. And for all of them, she found you know, calm within the storm. She was their advisor. And she had to thread a needle in messaging you know, complicated matter through a need, um, you know, very precisely so it resonated with the press and the public. So after about three days or four days after this diagnosis, when we were in free fall and helter-skelter land and- Your, your and, own crisis, your own crisis. Yes, our own crisis. Marsha was able to draw upon her professional experience and regain uh, some normality, at least in how we thought, in finding calm within our own storm. And that was helped a lot by when we saw uh, oncology oncologists and the large waiting rooms of oncology patients when we were getting treatment. So that's, we were constantly told, you know, during the uh, period Marcia survived, which was exactly 160 days, mm-hmm. we were constantly told by doctors and nurses that we were treating this experience in a far more uplifting way than was the norm. And then after Marsha um, passed, they encouraged me you know, to write a book about it. I only you know, came to, to do that after I went on to these curated uh, uh, rooms within uh, Facebook and other portals dealing with stage four pancreatic cancer, terminal illness, loss of the spouse, metastatic breast cancer. And I saw the great pain there. Yeah, yeah. So I felt that uh, our experience had had something to offer uh, these other people. And the purpose of the book is, is only to help other people. It's not a biography, it's not meant as a vanity thing, nor is it meant as a, a guide written by a uh, end of life expert. It's written as a peer and as a case study, uh, adding the flesh of our experience and drawing out important life lessons that others could apply to their own circumstances. I, it's so, and it's it's very very powerful. I will share with 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 listeners that I actually listened to a recorded version of it, um, and it's uh, that's really wonderful about attitude 
and about orientation, um, which is, I think, a lot about, you know, what this whole meditation, this extended meditation on resilience is about. And I have a, a copy of it as well. And in the moment when when I'm going to need to refer it to it, because all of us are going to be encountering extremists at some point, one way or another. This is part of the human condition, the human reality. And one of my, I think one of the most powerful teachings I know is that we are all tabs. We are all temporarily able-bodied people at some point in our life, either temporarily or for the duration, we are not going to have the full access to our capacity. I'm very happy to have the hard copy so that I can refer to it when I do need the more manual pieces. So I think you do a, just a masterful job of kind of toggling back and forth between narrative and instruction. And at every point you're saying, here is what we learned. And the most urgent instructions I think you give are both about mitigating pain, but not, not to, to shut people down, but to, to enable life to be lived more, most fully and in a most connected way mitigating pain and taking hold of whatever you can take hold of within this, within this hurricane. Well, what happened after the third or fourth day when we regained our, our balance and we understood the practicalities involved, that we didn't know how long Marsha would live. We thought one of these long shot chemos, you know, might work. The odds were drastically against it. Each of the heavy duty chemos we took only had a 20% chance, 20 or 25% chance of working. But, you know, after the third or fourth day, you know, we realized there was a fork in the road. And, you know, one, one path was to remain in helter skelter, free fall, bedlam, havoc, and uh, let emotions take over us and let massive societal problems that treat a terminal illness or some serious disease as a sport or a battle, which circumscribes the uh, experience to, you know, beating the, the, the thing, the cancer, and therefore defining your experiences, whether you won or lost versus the disease. We, that, that route is the, you know, is the conventional societal route, you know, well-documented by Atul Gawande and many other people, but it's, it's the majority uh, conventional view to, to, you know, fight this and that and with blinders on. The other course, the one that we found was the not, it was a panoramic view, was to open up to everything, open up to reality, which is to say, you know, hoping for the best, doing all that we can, but preparing for all eventualities. So, um, you know, that way we didn't forego any treatment. We did everything. You know, we did the two heavy duty chemos and, you know, we went off the rails a little bit, finding investigational drugs and even dog dewarmers that were, we found, mm-hmm. we got our oncologist to work out the human dosages with a CVS pharmacist. You know, we did everything, um, you know, all under our oncologist supervision, but our way, we called it the smooth river, you know, way enabled us to define the experience the way we wanted to. So the the mechanical way, um, the sport or fight way is to, you know, be, have a narrow, you know, conventional approach where many people end their lives in, you know, wired up in an ICU or fighting this and not seeing, you know, the wider picture. Our way uh, enabled us to impose absolute beauty on this experience. And that's what we did. This 
was her life. This was my life. Whatever we did before this, this is it. You know, the, the starting gun of the race, that gun lap or whatever, it's all here now. What do we want to do here? Mm-hmm. So, you know, this, this recognition, this taking um, you know, agency over this experience, at least over how we thought about it, right. gave us the ability to, to have decisions. And right. There's, you had so little control, but that you did have control over. And you, you, you recognized that immediately and, and began to build on it. We developed medical and life plans. You know, right. medical plan is, you know, balancing out, you know, pain medication, which uh, we found out late in the day, you know, she was under medicated. And so there's information in the book about balancing. This is not from me, but it's from experts. Right. You know, balancing out time release medication, which, you know, dulls down the pain and then breakthrough medication, which is more immediate to, to hit the spikes. But there's other advice, including, you know, the benefits of palliative medicine, which treats the entire patient, right. not just the thing. They treat com- patient comfort. Me- medicine is geared to, um, you know, treating the medical condition, almost in a tunnel. Symptoms. They're geared to, yeah. to, to solving problems. Right. Atul Gawande calls it ODTAA, one damn thing after another. Yeah, right. The right. Versus a wider approach to treat the entire patient, patient comfort and, and the quality of the patient's life. I would love to actually pause for a second and, and make a couple of reflections from a Jewish perspective. Um, uh, one kind of going back to something you said earlier, as soon as you said, we chose to take a panoramic vision. I think that part of it is so powerful. There's, there's a line in Psalms, we sing it when we sing Hallel, Min hametsar karatiya, out of a narrow place, I call to, to, to God, anani vamerchadya, God responded and they brought me out into an expansive place. And like that tension between narrow and expansive, for me, it's been such an incredible um, guiding metaphor, I would say, like root metaphor for me of like, when I am feeling so contracted, um, and uh, am I able to find ways to look up, to, to adopt that expansive view? And sometimes for me, it's just saying that line or singing that line can get me. And there are just so many more options when, when, when we can look at the panorama rather than when we are looking down, you know, in, in, in that tunnel. No, absolutely. You know, I didn't write the book, you know, from a, uh, a Jewish perspective. Or reconstructionist perspective, but it just so happens it's synonymous with the entire approach. I think it informed uh, it. You know, I think it, <laughs> you drew on it. I think. Oh, I, I, yeah, there that, I say. But but you know, on this point you're you're making now, um, you know, Marsha was very clear. This was a bummer. You know, she was dying too early. We didn't know how long she would live, but we knew it was a distinct possibility, and then a probability, and then a certainty. Um, but she did not want her life defined as a tragedy. Right. She did not want her life defined by cancer. We um, are, you know, our philosophy, this was not something that was rehearsed and it was, you know, innate. It was built into the DNA, which was, you know, clarity, um, you know, seeing the big picture panorama, panoramically, um, but, um, you know, defining our lives by their entirety and not by the way we die. It's the way we live. Right. This book is about life. It's not about you know death. 
Uh, but we discovered that when the hourglass is is brought upside down and the grains of so, uh, sand are dissipating, and the end of life becomes you know tangible, and we're all going to die. It's a mortality that we all have to come to terms with. But the closer we got to death, the more beautiful life became. And it was you know this um, we called it living you know the miracles of the mundane. We talk about it. Um, we there are prayers about it, but they can be almost aphorisms. They can be abstractions until they get real. And then you know walking down the block or you know part of our you know our our life plan was taking walks what along you know the Hudson River or Maranek Harbor or the Bronx River. Uh, we try to get out every day um, or you know candlelight dinners every night. We just impose beauty on, on this situation. This was this was it. Yeah, so right. this was the atmosphere we created and we wanted to um, we wanted everybody to be um, to be uh, soothed by our approach so they wouldn't suffer either. So I want again I want to I want to it takes me into two directions. I want to just reflect a little bit about, you were talking about the, the metaphor, I think the grounding metaphor that so often informs treatment of serious illness about either sport or battle and something to be won. And you, your, your desire and Marsha's desire so much that, you know, she would die as she would live. She would live as she would die, that, you know, that there was continuity and a huge learning I had when I started rabbinical school and started to study Jewish ritual more, more deeply than, than when, uh, how I experienced it when I was growing up was the, you know, the prayer for healing. I didn't know Hebrew uh, at the time. And Debbie Friedman's beautiful song, the Mishaber Lacholi and the prayer for healing hadn't been written yet with a beautiful translation, but the prayer is, is, is it's, it's not a prayer for cure. It's a prayer for healing. And it, and it expressly said our ancestors knew a, th- a thousand years ago, we, there's healing of body. And there's healing of spirit. And you, you and Marsha were able to track the spirit at every single point, even as her body was breaking down. And, and that, is, that kind of holism and that kind of awareness, I think, it just opens up opportunities, even in, even in a really sad and challenging time. You know, it sort of came natural to us. If um, we're going to define, and I'm going to talk in the plural, because you know, this was a, a joint thing. And, you know, as part of my, you know, grieving or afterlife, I'm talking for her now, I'm breathing for her now. So she's in me. Um, so we're still, you know, together. Um, but part of this, what was this, you know, recognition that, um, you know, a life is finite and we were have, we have to do, you know, the, 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 um, the best we can here. And medicine doesn't have all the answers. So uh, it wasn't a, a situation that medicine had a cure for. And uh, I am involved in the healthcare industry. I do involve, I do advise, you know, companies and merger transactions. I do um, immersed with, with doctors all the time. We call them KOLs, key opinion leaders. And I know the, the um, I'm going to call it mechanical, but it's just part of medicine is to cure. So the term smooth river I'd like to say it was the result of poetic research or looking at, you know, um, whatever centuries of, of, of text, but it just blurted out of my mouth. 
as an image that we wanted the doctors to have and how Marcia, we wanted Marsha to be treated. We wanted them to visualize a smooth river, you know, with trees overhanging it. And it doesn't mean forgoing a treatment. We only did hospice in the last four days of her life. It doesn't mean doing any of that, but it does mean um, not the helter-skelter, one damn thing after another, having a wide angle lens, and we were not going to get bummed out by every negative test. And every negative test was a bummer. Yeah, every every right. negative test was negative. We right. knew it. This is a really bad thing. And we don't want any of that throw us. This was a practice for you, I think. You know, it's not like you it's not like you made this decision and then could live in, in and on the smooth river right away. It was it was a root metaphor. It was a powerful framing device that that, that prompted you to return to it again and again, right? Right. Yes. Well, look, it's you. We all have this challenge. You know, you as a rabbi and of of having people um, confront or deal with uh, end of life or their mortality, and we have to live with you know pain and um, you know motivation to go on at the same time. We right. can't box up our emotions and, and, and put them into slipshod absolutes. Um, I I like my wound it did come it did come as a training yes i did have to grow and grow and grow and you know in a reconstructionally <laughs> you know i came to you know i believe as you do that you know there's no miracle god mm-hmm. the god lives within us i'm not sure there's a god or whatever but i do appeal to a a, a, a force power whatever spirit bigger than me in summoning the strength and courage and, uh, you know, willpower to navigate, you know, this road, um, you know, and bring the doctors into it, bring everybody into it. So there was this, you know, human agency that, you know, bringing in some religious concepts here of, of the self-empowerment. Right. You know, without being arrogant about it, but just, you know, being very humble about it. But it was the smooth river concept was, was, um, sort of developmental, but in a pressure-packed time period. So we came to it rather quickly. And we knew instantly that like with a snap of our fingers, exactly, I was going to do it. (laughs) People can't see, but I'm looking at Deborah on a Zoom. Yeah, I snapped my fingers. And and I was going to do it too. (laughs) (laughs) That when we said that, the nurses and doctors would know what we meant. Right, right. I think actually really part of what is so powerful for me coming to know you, Richard, through reading this book and through talking with you is your open heartedness around it. You know, it's clear you have a broken heart and it's clear this, this whole, you know, the loss of Marcia's illness and death has made your heart bigger and, and that you, you've been so oriented to the learning and to the sweetness and to the richness, even as you would so much prefer to have Marcia by your side. Right. Well, let me, if I might just, um, we, we divided our world into a medical plan and a life plan. And as I mentioned, the medical plan involved, you know, the heavy duty, you know, chemos, these talk to warmers, these investigational drugs. But also, as I say in the book, doing um, uh, prophylactic hydrations between the chemo sessions that helped with uh, um, uh, low blood pressure, really important stuff we've learned and, 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 and dovetailing a local hospital with a, 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 a University hospital, so we had some place to, for emergencies and, and pain management. But the life plan was very important. And in the life plan, which accomplished everything, you know, not just candlelight dinners or, or, or country, country road drives, but we, we did projects and we did projects to help other people. 
So we wanted to regain some sense of normalcy of who we were. And by doing good, you know, for other people, we, we felt good about ourselves and we were getting our heads above the cancer. Right. It was not going to, you know, subsume us. Okay. It might, I hate to use the word, it might end her life, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to end her spirit mm-hmm. and, or, you know, her, her afterlife within her survivors. So well, you, you thought very carefully about legacy together. She was very, able to very, look and, at and, it. And not just legacy, but fast forwarding yeah. events and projects during her lifetime. And I had to balance out, am I accelerating her death in her mind? Mm-hmm. Or, but why not let her experience these pilings where we're you know, putting in the ground so she can see how we were going to sustain the, the memory of her life you know, beyond. So the city of Tarrytown helped us build this, uh, you know, memorial bench and the whole bench, uh, honor and a memorial bench area on a bluff overlooking the Hudson River and a sunset view over the water. Um, they made an area for honoring memorial benches with Marsha's being the first. We set up a small family foundation called Marsha's Light Foundation with that Palestinian PhD woman I mentioned before. Um, but Regina, you know, helped set up um, food distribution in Haifa for Palestinians during COVID. Marcia died, by the way, a month before COVID hit. So we had a beautiful experience. And going back to the mechanical you know, therapies or keeping a patient alive, it would have been terrible it if she kept her alive for three or four day, uh, weeks and whatever. But we're designers, so we're doing that and we, we, we were you know, organizing um, learning between Jewish and Muslim students in an Arab university under Marcia's light. And I did a, uh, a talk here at a local mosque in Pleasantville, New York. I fed them uh, chicken birani halal sandwiches and our food and, and kosher pastrami. They told me no one would eat the kosher pastrami, but it went so fast. And they let me talk about <laughs> terminal illness in front of everybody. So I'd open the shadows and demystify the experience for their congregation. So we sought to do a lot of these projects during her for final days, final weeks. So to um, invest life in this experience. And so she can see the legacies, the, the foundations that we would stand on in, in bringing her forward. And really, I think, I mean, it's so powerful and it all really crystallized that she was able to, as, as the transition got closer and closer, she was able to say, this is what I want to continue a- after I'm no longer here. Well, she was incredibly modest. She would never have allowed her name to be attached to it. But, you know, she had this she, very, very low-key and self-effacing. So, um, but, you know, there was this soft, martial smile that, you know, this gave everything energy. And this woman, Rodina, we didn't really know her, but we spent two intense weeks with her. <laughs> and, um, you know, so she's, uh, you know, she's, she's, she's so invested in this thing. It's, it's wonderful. That's a completely different story. I'd love at some point to talk to you. I don't know if it's about it in a podcast about resilience, but the, your, your involvement in your involvement in multi-faith and multi-multicultural work is is incredibly powerful. Um, so one of the most powerful chapters in the book is about Marsha's wishes and how toward the end of her life, you and she were able to really to crystallize all of this. Do you, do you want to share? Do you want to talk about that and share her wishes? I do. Uh, and um, if I cry and break down, it, it's okay. You know, I, we've learned from the experience, and even now, um, that 
I like writing. <laughs> um, and breaking down is okay. I'm not overwhelmed by it. Um, it's like, you know, diving into water. So you're submerged for a bit of time, but then you come to the surface. So um, sometime during the experience, Marshall lived 160 days, about day 100, a palliative medicine doctor gave me a pamphlet, which was great. It's called Five Wishes. It was written by a nonprofit um, called Dying with Dignity, or Aging with Dignity, rather. And there's some legal um, directives in there, like a will and, and medical proxy, but there's also some soft information about how a patient wants to be treated and remembered. So they had something called five wishes. Now we, I had it in my backpack, something caused me to pull it out the last couple of days of Marsha's life. And we did what we always did. We took that as a precedent and molded it to our own circumstances and made them eight wishes, taking into account, you know, the Jewish, um, uh, you know, meaning and spirituality behind the number eight. So I'm gonna read to you a text that I, a text exchange between me and Rabbi Bronstein at Benham Shalom on day 159. Now, this is the day before she died. Now, we had mm -hmm. talked about these wishes mm -hmm. beforehand, but this is the last day. And there's um, Emil Pondalfi's uh, soft instrumental um, Broadway mu musical uh, tunes in the background and candlelight. And this is, this is the last day. Okay. Okay. But so you, didn't, you didn't actually know, you, you knew it was coming, but you didn't know it was I didn't know it was the last day. Right. Well, you know, Marsha was, you know, was not eating for two weeks. Her body was shutting down. Yeah. And yeah. when the body shuts, all they, all a dietitian would do is sip on ice chips. Ice chips. And her breath was halted. And, you know, this, she could only say a word at a time when she was nodding to me as I was, um, you know, um, helping her to engineer these, these wishes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. okay so. Here we go. This is from me to Rabbi Bronstein. Rabbi, we had another quality day, even though Marsh's systems are weakening. Even though we cry, there are moments of beauty on the smooth river. We don't know, we don't know timing, but she's not in pain, and it's therapeutic to listen to show tunes and just be in a room. Below are Marsh's wishes based on a template the palliative doctors gave us. If the boys, these are my sons, don't want to mention them at the funeral, might you? Marsh's wishes. I wish my family and friends to know that I love them. I wish my colleagues to know how gratifying they made my life. I wish to be forgiven for times I may have hurt my family, friends, and others. I wish to have my family, friends, and others know that I forgive them for when they may have hurt me. I wish everyone to know that I've lived in peace and that I start my new journey of peace. I wish to live on in happy memories, humor and inspiration, not grief and sorrow. I wish everyone to remember me as I was before I became ill. I wish for my family, friends and others to look at my passing as a time of personal growth. I wish for my family, friends and others to carry on with strength and with a higher purpose and not to sweat the small stuff. Thank you for helping me carry out my wishes. Still, this is day 159 from Let's I just want to, I just want to say like, you know, I, I'm weeping. I, you, you, you made it through and, and it's so powerful. Um, it, you know, look, it's a beautiful project at end of life. It's a beautiful project when someone's in their twenties or thirties. Right. And a large part of the book is we don't need to be going to the end. 
you don't need a crisis. Like at, at best, you don't need a crisis. This that's is right. And, but, but also, that's right. To experience, you know, what and who is in front of us now, and nor does it apply only to um, you know terminal illness or illness in general. It could apply to loss of a job or 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 um, or divorce. Right. You know, just right. any major event. Seeing a wider, you know, wide angle lens, taking it all in. Don't put blinders on, and you know assessing the pragmatics and the side effects and the alternatives, right. you know, clearly. Okay. So beautiful. Do you want to finish the exchange? Or yeah, do you yeah. Want to pick up so Rabbi, this is profound and inspiring. This is in every sense a reconstructed vadoi or confession, asking for forgiveness and giving it freely, implore, imploring her loved ones to remember her in her vitality, to continue remembering her in her own loving deeds and to send her on her journey with joy and acceptance. Back from me, less. Thank you for blessing her wishes. It's nice to know that Marsha's heart and authenticity are rooted in Jewish tradition, better yet, quote, reconstructed, personalized and kosher. From the rabbi, the most kosher of all, our love is with you today as you find the strength to make the necessary plans. Call any time. That's it, Deborah. It's, I mean, it's yeah. just so powerful. And that, that it wasn't, um, it was of a piece. Everything was of a piece. Her life, the navigation of the illness, the, the this 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 transition at the end and the capacity to articulate it and then everything that came after that you achieved the smooth river that you achieved the continuity that the that her illness became an opportunity for even further refinement of your core commitments rather than something that completely knocked you off off track and when i feel somber which is you know often like i said i like my wound i don't want to heal it I go to the cemetery, you know, often, but I'm not there, you know, weeping. Um, um, it's it's a therapy session for me. It clears my head, yeah. and um, it's I've discovered that cemeteries can be, you know, extraordinarily enlightening when you're not going there for an event, and your time is not, um, you know, defined by you know some you know, something you're doing there. But you know, this is during COVID when the world was. Well, you know, it was all congested and I, it was, it was fine there. And I, I read books there on a bench. So I'm, I'm very, 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 um, very clear there. Um, so these wishes help me move on, you know, right. during grief. I have my marching orders. <laughs> I know what Marsha wants me to do. And it doesn't mean, um, um, you know, forgetting the memory. I'm just carrying it forward. And as I said, she's in with me now. So I have to watch it <laughs> so she keeps me bounded. <laughs> I know if, if I leave the closet door open, she's going to get mad at me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to make two points and, and, and start to wind us down. Uh, very early on in our conversation, you talked about how as rabbis, we talk about it in sermons. And if, if you're someone who goes to synagogue or goes to religious services, you, 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 you see some of this in ritual, but it's so different when it's in real life. And I want to talk, I want to talk both about, I want to talk about how ritual, I think is ritual and liturgy and having the, some of the pointings toward this in the context of Jewish community, because this, this kind of, this is deep, Rabbi Bess Bronstein is exactly right. This is deeply, deeply Jewish. This is deeply, deeply kosher. Judaism is much more than American society really oriented toward the awareness of mortality and how it should inform our each and every day. And I think of it as like a rehearsal 
and like to give you some of the muscles at its best. And I think about, um, you know, there, there, it's embedded in, in daily practice and in weekly practice, but it's most powerfully we confront our mortality during the high holiday season, the whole period of of reflection and of, of accountability and of repair. And then on Yom Kippur, when we say the vidui, when we, uh, we offer up our confession, when we're seeking forgiveness. And when I think about, uh, especially the Unatana Tokef of um, uh, that prayer of who will live and who will die, the book of life and the book of death and who will live and who will die. And I always think of that, that is like a flaying that we like our, we strip our skin away so that we can feel most acutely. And the idea is so that if in feeling acutely, we will understand the preciousness and the fragility of life. And it's hard to maintain that sensibility. It, we, it's so easy to get dulled to it and get, um, you know, comforted by how, how permanent today feels, even though it's so changeable, or to get anesthetized to it, if there is the pain and the, and, and the sorrow, to just stuff it down with, you know, food or drugs or immersing ourselves in a digital environment, losing ourselves in a digital environment. You know, I'm talking as a conduit now, mm-hmm. not as a scholar, um, but I, I was very turned off the first uh, Yom Kippur to, um, to the Yodotar Togev um, in terms of who shall live and who shall die. I mean, it is the broader experience or challenge of unpacking the prayer because they're, they're, they're pregnant with so much meaning. Right. But like everything in life, we're driving a car. It can get mechanical. It right. can become anesthetized. We don't understand the meaning or the texture. Right. So I, you know, who shall live and who shall die? I felt that was, that right. doesn't relate to me. I mean, who the hell is, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel shunned. Mm-hmm. Someone had, you know, predestined. Right. I know other people who had, you know, passed away. Okay. Um, but I do understand what you're saying. It's a challenge to get. We write ourselves into the book of life. Right. And no, I, no, I, I yeah. get it now. I get right. it now. Right. And I have right. to shock absorb everything. Right. There's intense beauty in these prayers, but right. I don't think. I think we could, we can channel a lot of, you know, the, the uh, in, in intense meaning of, you know, prayer and, and other experiences into, into a habit and mm-hmm. it loses its meaning. And right. so, you know, I implore you and all clergy to help us, you know, understand the meaning so we could, you know, we, we could experience it more texturally. Right. Into texture. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Cause I think that, if the takeaway from, if the reconstructed, the modern reconstructed takeaway of Unatana Tokef is not that there is a God sitting in heaven judging us on our sins and, and our good deeds, but in fact that we write ourselves into the book of life, I think the Smooth River in its life-affirming messages and tactics that you suggest uh, is, is a pathway. And, and it's absolutely my job to be, and, and my colleague's job to be creating other pathways as well. And you have joined us in laying out that path of, of, how, of how to do that affirmative, grabbing hold of all the richness and all of the sweetness and all of that in the midst of all the tenderness and in the midst of all the, and all the terror even. Well, it's an honor to join you <laughs> in, in any effort. So thank you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> So here's where I want to end because we do have to wind down. I want to talk, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about like the fact that you were a member of a synagogue, even if there were things that didn't always work for you and what it meant, what it means, the role of community and the role of connection in, um, in, in navigating this, because 
in the face of the incredible over embrace, I think, of individualism in American society and the isolation that can result from it, I'm, I'm, I'm always making the case. I'm always proselytizing for communities. It is, I think, one of the most powerful teachings that come out of Judaism that we are the minyan, the collective is so important to allow the individual to flourish. And, and part of the part of my argument, but it's a it's it's I feel like it's an argument back on my heels is like when things get really bad, you you're going to want people to support you, but you got to you got to be a part of that community before things get bad. You got to pay in so that you can draw out when you need it. So and it's if that sounds scolding it, for me, it's um it's an axiom. Like I, I don't know how to make it. it. It's it's so in my blood that I, I don't know how to make it so that it's inviting rather than scolding. It's tremendously inviting. And I've been a member of Bedam for um, you know, 25 plus years and, and, and therefore with the Reconstructionist movement, um, it's, it's you know, building goodwill and building yeah. relationships. Um, so I've, you know, I don't always you know, uh, go to Shabbat services, I do it you know, occasionally, but um, you know, it's a remarkable you know, community goodwill to draw upon and it's not abstract or you know, individual people. I will, I will say that you know, during Marsh's specific experience, there was so much physical pain and so many ups and downs that we, you know, we had to find, she wanted to find her experience her way. And other people invite all sorts of people in and couldn't do that. She, we didn't want, she didn't want to, she had, a, she had to tend to herself, understanding that she had built up all this goodwill work-wise and community-wise, so everybody would understand. So I filled everybody in that we couldn't, you know, live our lives in accordance with the expectations of other, others. So having said all of that, you know, what I read you about the text exchange with Rabbi Bronstein, that was just the tip of the iceberg. And, and I came, we were in this room 413, you know, day 160, a couple of hours after we did those five wishes, we woke up, I, was, I slept there, and Marsha had passed. And then we were exposed to the, you know, this public, Forum, you know, the, the, the funeral and the burial and the shiver and, you know, forget the Broadway tunes now. We were on, on Broadway, you know, yeah. on, you know, with a mat. But we, you know, I'm talking as if Marsh is still here, my, my family came to understand the immense power of community in doing this. And it was, it was so therapeutic and, and, um, it just helped. It was not just for us. It was therapeutic for everybody. So it was, it, 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 these are beautiful customs and rituals. Um, I, I just don't think you could just snap your fingers and make it go. I think you need to build and be invested in the community yeah. for years ahead of time to really understand the power. Of it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's as important. Yeah. I, I think helping people to face their mortality so that they can live fully is, is an urgent message, an urgent teaching and helping people to understand that, that we are all interconnected and that we can live most fully as individuals when we align ourselves with others, when we submer voluntarily submerge some of our own interests in the service of building up something larger than ourselves, that that will actually redound to our own individual well-being so much so much more that that also feels equally urgent to me. There are things that I think are helping to bring that into focus, including the pandemic and including climate crisis, um, at least for some people, but it, both of those feel um, 
like such 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 important uh, uh, teachings to to and practices to 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 move forward on. Um, and again, I, the smooth, I can't recommend the Smooth River more more highly. And Richard, you you've just uh, clearly you have your finger on the pulse of something, and you were able to not only identify it but to bring it to life in a really powerful and really accessible way. Thank you so much, and Yasher Koach, and congratulations. It's it's really. And to, to make so much meaning out of such a challenging experience, your 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 heart and your brain really uh, came together, and and your and 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 you're carrying on Marsha's life and Marsha's Marsha's light. Well, thank you so much, Deborah. Again, uh, you know the message and the themes are more important than the book um, because of why you mentioned, and I appreciate your uh, giving this voice. Um, so it's such a pleasure to be with you. I want to thank my guest, Richard Cohn, for our powerful conversation on living fully um, in the face of, of everything and anything, of, of finding your own smooth river, um, hopefully with uh, wisdom and community to, to guide you. Um, for more on this topic, you can go right to a, a dedicated website, smoothriver.org. You can also look on Hashidenu's website, which will have a link to that and to other resources. It's hashidenu.fireside.fm. And you can find more resources on reconstructingjudaism.org, on ritualwell.org, on evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. And please subscribe, rate, and review us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman. I promise you Rabbi Sandra Lawson will be with us next time. And you've been listening to Hashidenu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. Hashem, they knew.